Hey, good morning, everyone. Welcome to Menham Hills Community Church, and I hope you had a wonderful, wonderful Christmas. I hope you were part of the 1,200 or so folks that joined us right here in this room, in our church, over two days, five services, and celebrated the birth of our Savior. Hopefully, if you weren't here, you were online. I'm imagining there was probably hundreds of folks that viewed the service online. I just hope that it helped you to grow closer to Jesus this Christmas. I also want to thank all of you that have been supporting us financially this year and encourage those of you that are members of Menham Hills Community Church. Maybe you're physically here every Sunday. Maybe you're part of our online community every Sunday. I want to, want to thank you for your financial contributions this year and just remind you that this is the last Sunday of 2021. And so if you are going to be supporting us financially in 2021, we would encourage you, I'd encourage you to, just as the, the announcements just said, to go to mhcc.life and help us meet our budget this year. Now, with all of that said, welcome to what used to be called at our house, ominously kind of, the day after. Now, Joan and I, we're really big Christmas people. I mean, really big Christmas people. We're actually the sons and daughters of big Christmas people too, maybe too big. It's actually a true story. One of our kids, when they were little, every Christmas night, I would put them to bed. And for several years, they would literally cry themselves to sleep. And the first year or two, I'd come up and go, you know, honey, what's the matter? Why are you so upset? And the answer was always the same on Christmas night. Because it's over, they would say. It's all over. And heck, maybe you're feeling a little bit that way this morning. All the work and the planning, the decorations, the baking. Some of you are really sad and some of you are celebrating that it's over. It's all over. Whichever camp you're in, I, I want to thank you for, for taking some time away from printing out all those return labels for the gifts that have to go back and joining us here this morning. And I hope in all of the craziness that our modern day Christmas has become, you were able to experience a little bit of the peace, the shalom that we've been talking about together for the last month. Guys, you know there was actually once a real first day after the first Christmas morning. And my guess is it didn't feel a lot different than maybe ours feels this morning. You know, the truth is we know remarkably little about the early days of Jesus' life. Here's what we know. We know that angels had come to both Joseph and Mary separately to tell them about God's plan for them and their not-yet-born son. Luke, he was a first-century physician-turned-historian. He tells us that the angel Gabriel the same angel who had visited Mary had told her relative, Elizabeth's husband, Zachariah, that he and Elizabeth were going to, even in their old age, they were going to bear a son. He would grow up and be called John. We know him as John the Baptist. And Luke also records that Mary then went and stayed with Elizabeth for three months prior to the birth of Jesus. And that's where I would imagine Elizabeth confirmed to Mary everything that the angels had told her. And then, after all of that, here's my guess. Nothing happened. Like, silence, nothing. Months and months, maybe up to six months of just quiet. And I mean, look, right? Mary and Joseph are human beings. They've got to be wondering, what's going on? No more angelic visitors? And I'm sure the census that was decreed by Caesar Augustus that forced their journey from where they were living in Nazareth back to Joseph's hometown of Bethlehem, that was a four or five day journey, about 80 miles or so. 
And along the way, as you know, they found no room in the inn. I mean, these things needed to be piling up and becoming a little disconcerting. It had to seem to them that if this was actually uh, of God, then things would be going a bit smoother. There'd be some more communication. And then Jesus is born, well, in a manger. His his first bed's a, a food trough for animals. I mean, this seems so pedestrian, so ordinary, doesn't it? I mean, heck, it seems less than ordinary. The shepherds, remember, they got the big announcement. The heavenly host, right? The wise men who weren't going to be around for a long time, they got a star to follow. But Mary and Joseph, they got a stable and some straw. Where was the heavenly host for them? Where's the angelic choir? Where's the voice from heaven? You see, that first Christmas night, other than a visit from some shepherds, there was nothing going on. See, that first day, After Christmas, I think it was a lot like this day after Christmas. Nothing special going on. Kind of a letdown, really. Lots of buildup, and then suddenly, nothing. And for Mary and Joseph, it was like that. Day after day, week after week, about six weeks to be precise. And then, well, this same Luke picks up the story. And here's how one writer imagined it went down. It was mid-morning or so when Joseph and Mary and their infant son entered into Jerusalem's fountain gate at the city's southern tip. They, they passed by the pool of Siloam where the disabled and the diseased hoped for, for the healing stir of the water. And they walked northwest up the street that led to the Temple Mount. It was bustling with the rattle and hum of morning chores and commerce. It had been 40 days since Mary had birthed her boy, and under Jewish law, This had made her unclean and required a purification sacrifice on that 40th day. And so she and Joseph, they'd made that 10-mile trek now from Bethlehem the previous day up to the temple, camping with a few others about a half mile or so outside of the holy city. Outside of that temple complex, Joseph, well, he probably went and bartered with some merchants for two turtle doves. The inflated prices angered him. Profiting from purification, he thought. I mean, he also likely felt shame that he couldn't afford a lamb. Doves were a poor man's sacrifice. He was barely eking out a living in Bethlehem, taking whatever odd job he could. Mary watched Joseph return, and he came back with this cloth bag, its erratic movements divulging the inner turmoil. And sorrow had to flash through her eyes. She had always recoiled at at the sacrifices, the, the struggle and the fear and the violence, the blood, the the innocent life killed because of another's guilt. These two frightened creatures in the bag, they would soon too die to make her clean, which made her hold Jesus even tighter. And so as they made their way up into the complex and across the noisy court of the Gentiles towards the eastern gate of of what is known as the inner wall, hundreds were praying, men with covered and women with uncovered heads, and suddenly in front of them, as they're walking through, an old man appeared came up to them and almost yelled out, let me see the child. He sounded almost distressed. So Joseph stepped up and shielded his wife, but the man looked at Joseph, first confused and then smiled. And taking Joseph's prohibiting hands in both of his, he patted it and said, I'm sorry, my son, you must forgive old Simeon. Please don't be afraid. Your your child's in no danger from me. I I've just been waiting for him for so long. 
And see, Mary, she, she probably knew immediately that he knew. The old man looked to her and gently asked, may I see your son? And Mary smiled and, and nodded and Joseph probably stepped back. The man moved near and, and looked in awe at the child. At first, barely audible, he muttered, the salvation of Israel, the glory of Israel. And without taking his eyes off Jesus, he asked, may I hold him? Mary felt no fear at this point as she placed Jesus into Simeon's arms and he gently rocked him and mouthed silent praise with tears streaming. Mary glanced at Joseph, who was wordless too. And then this old man, Simeon, he, he broke into a half-sovereign or half-sobbing prayer. Sovereign Lord, as you've promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations. This is the light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. Well, Mary again, and, and for the first time in all these months of silence, she felt the shivering wonder that her baby, this one that she nursed and changed and bathed and cradled, that he was Christ the Lord. Simeon, still gazing adoringly at the child, said, years ago the Lord promised me that death wouldn't come until I had seen his Christ, and today I opened my eyes while I was praying, and there you were, an infant. I, I never thought you would be an infant. Looking to Joseph with laughing eyes, he said, one never thinks of the Christ as an infant. And with a kiss of blessing, Simeon softly placed Jesus back in his mother's arms, and dried his eyes with a sleeve and turned to walk away. To Mary and Joseph, after all of these months of silence, this had to have been wonderful confirmation of the angelic visit so long ago. For them, it had to reaffirm what they knew Isaiah, their nation's great prophet, had prophesied 700 years earlier about their newborn son, that he would one day be called the Prince of Peace. It had to validate for them what the shepherds said when, when they came and met them at the manger, that they had heard the angelic host proclaim that on earth there would be peace and goodwill towards men. It all seemed so right at the, that moment. All the pieces seemed to be coming together, that is, until Simeon paused and turned back and looked into the now moist eyes of Mary, this teenage unwed mother, and he walked back and gently cupped her head with his hands and tearfully said to her, this child, this child is designed to cause the, the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. And then choking up a little bit, he looked even deeper into her eyes and continued. And Mary a sword will piece your own soul too. Friends, many of you have read these words before, but maybe never like that. Maybe not until this morning. Maybe you've never felt them the way Mary had to have that morning. You see, we've just spent the last month of this Christmas season focusing on the message of Christmas, that Jesus had come to bring peace on earth. 
as we've been studying, he came to bring shalom, the restoration, the reconciliation of everything that had been broken and lost by the fall. He came to reconcile us to God and to ourselves and to one another. And yet, here's the message Mary got just 40 days later. This child is going to be responsible for the falling and rising of many. He's going to be spoken against and a sword, not peace, not shalom, a sword will pierce your own soul. I mean, Simeon's message, it just seems so, I mean, so incongruous at best with everything we've been looking at, at Jesus' gospel of peace, of, of shalom, of reconciliation. And well, if we're honest, I mean, if we're honest, it's a little bit cruel at worst. And maybe, maybe after all these weeks, we might think, well, oh, it's just some old man. Maybe he's just a little bit senile, you know? Maybe he doesn't really know what he's talking about. I mean, we've been looking at this together now. This is the Prince of Peace after all. And maybe Mary and Joseph thought for a while that the old guy was just wrong until they overheard their own Jesus say this. Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I've come to turn a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be members of his own household. Guys, raise your hand this day after Christmas morning if you are now confused. What? I mean... This is the same Jesus whose birth we just celebrated, who also said to his disciples, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. He would go on to tell them, I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you're going to have trouble, but take heart, I've overcome the world. And so after all, which is it? Did Jesus come at Christmas to bring peace, shalom to the world, did he come to restore and repair everything that's been torn asunder by sin? Or did Jesus come to bring a sword? And the answer is both. See, here's the deal. Before we wrap up our Christmas series, as your pastor, the series would be incomplete. Honestly, it wouldn't be right if I didn't give you a fair warning about what I'm going to call Simeon's sword. First, everything we've shared over these last few weeks, you need to hear me on this, is completely true. The gospel of Jesus is peace. It is shalom. This is the good news of Jesus. Peter told a Gentile in, uh, named Cornelius when he went to his house, this is in the book of Acts, he said, Cornelius, the gospel of Jesus, the good news is peace. Paul told the church that he wrote to in Ephesus to take on, some of you know the story, he was telling them to put on the full armor of God, and he said that includes, quote, your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Jesus' gospel, his good news, is that peace has come, peace is a who, peace is he. Through his life, through his substitutionary death on the cross in our place, where the justice of God due us was put upon Jesus on our behalf, we now have peace with God. Jesus has brought shalom, wholeness, completeness to the relationship between God and we. As we looked at, his gospel has the power to bring to, 
to us the peace that we all desire within. The, the inner peace so, much of, uh, so many of us are looking for. Peace despite our circumstances. And when we have that peace within, then we have the potential to bring that peace to others. Those things are all true. And while it is also true that Jesus came to bring a sword, it's not in the way you might think. How do I know? Well, beyond all that we've looked at already, it's possible that his disciples might have misunderstood the sword message too. Some of you know the scene on the night of his betrayal after the Last Supper. Jesus gets up and heads off to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray, and it's there that Judas and the guards come to arrest him, an arrest that eventually ends up with his crucifixion and death, the one that won for us our peace. Now on that night and in that garden, Peter, perhaps misunderstanding, misunderstanding what Jesus had said earlier about that sword, as the guards come for Jesus, does anybody remember what Peter does? Matthew tells us that the men stepped forward, seized Jesus, and arrested him. With that, one of Jesus' companions, John would tell us that it was Peter, reached for his sword, drew it out, and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. And then Jesus said, way to go, Peter. You get the gospel now. I came to bring a sword, and now you're going to swing it for me. Nice cut, dude. That's not what Jesus said. Jesus said to him, Peter, put your sword back in its place. For all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Guys, Jesus came to bring a sword, but not in the way Peter thought or often we do. You see, Jesus is our peace. Jesus' gospel is peace. Jesus came so that we might have peace, but Jesus does not give peace the way the world does. You see, Jesus brings peace the way a surgeon does. How does a surgeon heal the cancer that's slowly killing you? You see, without cutting you open, without the spilling of some blood, without some amount of pain to take it out, no healing for you comes. What does a good counselor do? Same thing. Instead of having you keep painful issues from the past repressed inside, he, he would bring them up. He brings them up in order that they might be healed. One writer put it this way, the good surgeon and the qualified counselor have this in common. They often have to make you feel worse in order that you might get better. Jesus did not come to incite violence, but here is the truth. Simeon nailed it. His presence, his teaching, his spirit will cause struggle and strife. That is the way his peace comes. These conflicts, they happen in two ways. First, the truth is that Jesus causes conflicts between people. But again, not often in the way we think. You all remember what Simeon said, don't you? He said, this child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that, now listen here, so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. Here's how the sword can come in relationships because of Jesus. His disciple John explained it this way. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. And everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. Guys, this sword, this conflict that Jesus brings, it comes when the light that he is exposes us 
for what we are. The writer of the Christmas devotional, Hidden Christmas, explained it this way. Great example. I once knew, he wrote, a white family in a neighborhood that was very welcoming to the first African-American family who moved into their area. Their white neighbors were furious with them. For years, these neighbors had given any new non-white families a cold shoulder. The friendly family made others feel the pressure to be more open and engaging, and they didn't like it, not at all. In fact, he went on, he said, I once knew a policeman who, after converting to Christianity, would no longer take the money that the local pimps required, uh, that they were quietly passing around the precinct so that the police wouldn't arrest any of their prostitutes. A couple of other policemen approached him one day and said, you know, you, you better watch it. You're making the other guys nervous. You've got to take the money. But he refused, and after getting some anonymous threats, he had to actually move to another city. Do you see the principle, how it plays out? You don't have to be Jesus Christ to get people furious at being exposed for what they are. I mean, just living an honest, moral life I mean, it starts to bring light. It starts to expose gossip in the office and corruption in the government and racism in the neighborhood. The manger at Christmas means that if you live like Jesus, there won't be room for you in a lot of ends. The coming of Jesus into our lives, it makes us peacemakers, but it also brings conflict. If you're a committed follower of Jesus, then you're going to know the triumphs of peacemaking and you're going to know the heartbreak of opposition. This is what allowed the psalmist to write, I am for peace, but when I speak, they're for war. Now this is my story. Maybe it's yours, it's my truth, at least part of it. See, in college, when, when I first became a believer, I was given peace with God by having faith in Jesus. But I found the peace of God as I surrendered my life to him and, and tried to be obedient. And I changed. And, and some of my friends weren't all that happy about it. Things that I once did and enjoyed, I, I stopped doing. Places I, want, I once went, I, I no longer did. And the truth is that after a while, here's the truth. I stopped getting invited to go and hang out. I stopped being asked if I wanted to go out. This is what a sword does, after all. It divides. Now, had I left it at that, had I let the sword of Christ do what it does by the light in my life, that would have been plenty enough for my friends or my family to see. Unfortunately, sometimes in my younger days, I made the mistake that many young believers do. You see, I read what Paul wrote to the Ephesians about this full armor of God. And some of you know the elements of the armor. Paul says that there's a belt of truth, a breastplate of righteousness, a a shield of faith and a helmet of salvation. Many preachers have noticed these are all, de uh, all defensive weapons. And, and I was taught like you, there's only one offensive weapon. And it's, well, it is, surprise, a sword. Paul calls it the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. <laughs> and I, I mean, I picked it up all right. Maybe you did too. And I had it. I, I knew it was an offensive weapon and I was downright offensive with it. Friends, I was no Bible thumper. I was a sword swinger. 
I wasn't content with letting my light shine by my actions. I wanted it to shine off of my sword as I told everybody what it was that they were doing wrong. I told my family. I hacked at my friends. See, somehow I got the message that my job was to swing the sword of the Spirit, to cut them with the Word of God whenever I saw a sin on display. Have you gotten that message? Has anybody else but me ever done this? And here's my question. Does it ever work? You see, I missed two things in my passion for righteousness. The first was who Paul told us the enemy was. You know, right before he tells us to put on the full armor of God, he lets us know why. He says that, quote, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers and against authorities, against powers of, of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. I'm swinging at the wrong enemy. I was swinging at flesh and blood. And so was Peter that night in the garden. And that's why the second thing I missed was Jesus telling Peter, Peter, put down your sword. At least when it comes to swinging it at others. Listen, friends, this Christmas weekend morning, put down your sword. And here's why. See, the second place where the sword of Simeon comes, where conflict arises because of Jesus, it's not just with others, it's within. And see, that's the place where the sword of the Spirit, where the Word of God was to do its best work in me. The writer to the Hebrews put it this way, for, for the Word of God is alive and active, and here it is again, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to the dividing of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. You see, the sword of the Spirit, the sword of the Spirit was supposed to be doing its best work in me. The sword that would pierce the heart and soul of Mary is to pierce mine too. The problem is, while I've been swinging it around a lot out there, if you're at all like me, when it comes to the work that needs to be done in me, well, I'm much more of a butter knife guy. You see, the butter knife of the Spirit, well, it's short, it's kind of blunt, doesn't cut very well or go very deep. The sword of the Spirit does its best work on me, in me, the butter knife of my own convictions and excuses. It, it never touches the cancer in the deep places. See, does the sword bring conflict and pain and uncertainty? Of course it does. That's the truth. As I come to know the, the heart, the will, the word of God, it will judge my thoughts and my attitudes, but not in a condemning way. We know we have peace with God. We have been offered the peace of God. The truth is that Jesus wields his sword within me a lot more surgically than the one that I've been swinging around at others. Simeon told Mary that a sword would pierce her own soul. And we know it did. Here's what we know. We know that Mary 
while all of the disciples, pretty much all of them were gone, she stood by her son as he was nailed to the cross. She watched her son die to pay the price for her own sins. Friends, is there a sharper sword? This is not what Mary wanted. This was not the plan or her dream for her son. Mary never, maybe in her life, got Jesus completely. At least pre-resurrection, Jesus, she thought Jesus might be out of his mind. Some of you know the story. Her, her and, and her family, they at certain points tried to stop Jesus in his ministry. And you know, I believe if she could have, she would have stopped him at the cross. And you know what that makes Mary? That makes Mary just like you and me. I mean, how often, how often do I want to drop all of the crosses that show up in my life? Because if you love Jesus and you follow him and you serve him with your life, you are going to have a sword pass through your heart as well. There will be inner conflict. See, there has to be when the word of God is used on our hearts like a sword and not like a butter knife. Sometimes there will be great pain and disappointment because we're loving people recklessly. We're serving them tirelessly. We're forgiving them boundlessly. Peacemakers face opposition. Jesus did. Why do you think you won't? Look, there's going to be times, just like Mary, where we're going to get them wrong. There's going to be times when he seemingly lets us down and we're going to get mad. You might fight with them. You might fight with yourself. The conflict with others might someday seem dim compared to the battle within. But take heart, my friends. And this Christmas, remember this. The most wonderful, glorious, gracious event in human history was God sending his son into the world, to the cross, to save his people from their sins. The greatest event in the history of mankind was also the exact same event that caused indescribable grief for Mary. See, as God works out his salvation of sinners, he leads us along unexpected paths and often they result in unexpected and sometimes agonizing pain. And it's at that moment when the sword falls, we can remember Mary the darkest moment of her life, the sword that stabbed the deepest into her soul, that was the moment that God used most to bring salvation and joy to the world and ultimately to her. I have to tell you this day, he is our peace, but that's how he works with us too. Guys, when the sword pierces, it feels like terrible pain. But later, we often discover that our deepest wounding becomes the channels through which the most profound healing flows. The way to the peace of Jesus is often through the sword of Simeon. I mean, what if, what if Mary had said, I don't want a sword in my soul? What if she had cried out and, and lived with the, I don't want to bring peace that way? Where would you and I be? Where would she be? Guys, Merry Christmas. May you this year, in increasing and very tangible ways, may you know intimately the Prince of Peace. And when the sword comes, 
and it will, don't shrink back. Follow Jesus to peace.